Hello, welcome back to Periphery. Um, this week we had a very exciting conversation with former Presidential Innovation Fellow, former Carnegie Mellon Professor, CEO and co-founder of Connexus, and pretty much an all-around artificial artificial intelligence algorithm guru, uh, Dr. Eric Daimler. Um, and he left us with, I think, a handful of interesting nuggets to um to have a conversation about and. We love to do that here, don't we? We love nuggets. <laughs> what do you guys think? I thought that he is ultimately an AI optimist. He ultimately talked about the benefits that AI brings to like starting a business or to just doing a, a complex job where uh, you would it feels mundane, but it still requires skills. And AI presents a solution through automation to that. So ultimately, I think he thinks the benefit of AI outweighs the cost. Um, but he also, you know, recognized that there are harms. And he had particular ideas about how government should structure its own employees and its expertise in order to develop regulations that work. That was my impression of him. Yeah, I was curious about um, what was his comment about, like, there being 18 million yeah. uh, programmers, uh, computer programmers in the world? You know, there are 18 million computer programmers in the world. We do not necessarily need 18 million in one. And while it's really great that people uh, uh, learn, we'll say, computational thinking, you know, they know how computers work, uh, it's much more important that they just engage and know what they want, you know, what, with, with some degree of clarity. You know, that's what's really important. There seemed to be, to be kind of a tension between, between that idea of having or not needing any more computer scientists, but then also... Um, he pointed out specific laws that he felt didn't really reflect a very sophisticated um, technical understanding. What, what I'm really frustrated by with seeing some of this regulation is just the, the degree of, uh, uh, of ignorance that's reflected in some of these regs, uh, despite them having a lot of resources. So the, you know, the worst example was uh, the, the, the city of New York somehow thought it appropriate to institute some guidelines uh, about automated recruiting, and it just it just blows my mind that uh, uh, somehow they thought that that because it was digitally automated and not automated by people, we should disclose to people that that somehow while their resume is being reviewed, it's being reviewed by a computer and not two thousand people. Uh, that's that's a degree of overreach that 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 makes my head hurt. The the European Union when they introduced some regs in early 2022, uh, you know, justifiably got slammed for the ridiculousness uh, uh, of those initial drafts. Because, I mean, that thing looked like my resume. You know, everything under the sun is AI and therefore will be regulated. Uh, you know, and the, the GDPR uh, additions that came and got approved, I think, in, in December of 2021, those uh, are interesting, but I don't think they have any teeth because the technology for enforcing them is undetermined. What those outlined was a requirement to have pseudonymization of data be be provable but they didn't say how and and i i don't think anybody's really going to care until somebody other than google gets a billion dollar fine then then you know until then it's just it's just going to be ignored for me i did feel there was a tension between this idea of having a broader conversation bringing in people with a humanities background but then still also having the requisite technical understanding so that these regulations actually do what we want them to do. Yeah, the idea being that there are all these societal problems that we have not yet been able to answer 
satisfactorily. And so like, let's bring other people into the conversation. But at the same time, I think there's no way to include non-tech non-technical people in that conversation without sort of abstracting away from the technical issues in a way that sort of risks like mischaracterizing them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that his conversation about there should be some training in terms of like understanding how computers work, but maybe you don't need to be like a full fledged software engineer or computer scientist to be able to be participating in the conversation. Hmm. I mean, I feel like ultimately this goes back to how we originally started talking to Eric Daimler, which was with a question about how he defines artificial intelligence, because our conversation and, you know, this episode is largely about AI policy and what it takes to create policies that work, but also what kind of people and skills are needed to begin to even grapple with the issue of AI from a policy perspective. Um, but I mean, I think that really goes back to how you define AI in the first place. What are you regulating? And uh, he critiqued the AI Act's definition of AI as essentially regulating all software. But he had a definition that was very non-technical, I thought. AI is a system that senses plans and acts, and then learns from the experience. So unpacking that, you can sense data, collecting data from sensors in your house on air quality or the LIDAR on top of your car, and then bringing that data from these sensors, Internet of Things could be the uh, uh, paradigm here, bringing that data into a planning mechanism. Kind of to traditionally what you think of as the thinking or the brain or the AI, but then it has to act after you have the autonomous vehicle looking out, it then has to decide, is that a shadow on the crosswalk or is that a person? And do I then, uh, uh, using my decisions, my planning, stop the car, slow down the car, or just keep rolling, as, as Tesla likes to do? And then I learn from that experience in particular. So cars aren't going to spontaneously learn Mandarin Chinese, right? They're, they're going to learn the shadows of a particular intersection. You know, I'm here in San Francisco. I look out my office window. I, I see Zook's cars going down the street every day, multiple times an, an hour, it seems. They're not going to learn a foreign language. They're learning the shadows and the light as it changes in a particular domain in that particular part of a particular city. That's So it's sensing, planning, acting, learning from the experience. That's how I think of AI. You know, if you wanted to be pedantic, you would say- Well, we like to be pedantic. <laughs> there, there is this, this concept called deep learning, which has gotten a lot of press. It's where data science has moved mostly, which is a subset of machine learning, which is itself a subset of artificial intelligence, which implies then that there are non-machine learning artificial intelligence. Uh, but that's not useful to most people in, in, in daily conversation. So since Plan Act... And, and that definition sounds to me like basically without any kind of technical mooring, a, a bunch of anthropomorphisms. Yeah. Those are things that humans do. And we're interpreting or perceiving that kind of action because these machines are so complex and are able to calculate and use so much information. Um, with a definition like that, I'm, I, I feel like inevitably you're going to create policies that may not be technically possible or might have more harm to the technical side of it. It's not, it's not a unique idea to say, like, let's involve people in this conversation. We we have talked about that multiple times. I find it interesting that a technical person is the one saying, like, because we we'll we talk to other people with humanities backgrounds and they recognize, like, their value in the field. But for him to be a computer scientist and say, we don't need another, like, one more computer scientist is yeah. interesting. I did find that interesting too. But what I'm what I'm still trying to understand is, how that technical understanding is actually come, gonna 
influence our policies. As he also acknowledged, you know, even the experts in the Office of Science and Technology aren't really the ones that are going to be writing the laws. It's going to be people in Congress. And like voters, it feels to me, aren't really electing their representatives based on their technical understanding, at least not yet. Um, so how do we how do we get that understanding to the people who are actually going to be writing the laws that are going to govern artificial yeah. intelligence? I think that's kind of where the value of someone not so in the weeds comes. Uh, just because he, you know, we spoke about how one AI is very difficult to define and to some extent, we need to be more precise with what we're actually talking about and concerned about. Are we concerned about discrimination hiring? That has a different remedy than, you know, lethal Thomas weapons, which has, and it's also different technology itself. And I think part of the issue is getting that translation of, okay, sure, AI might be this system of technologies that learn, what is it? He said, acts, senses, <laughs> is it processes? <laughs> well, I have it in my list. And acts? Um, it, it senses, plans, acts, and then learns. Uh -huh. And these are pretty generally human things that we do. Um, but to operationalize, you know, to really cut to the issues that we're looking to address, you know, the fact that my health insurance might be higher or lower than yours based on some automatic decision-making... That's a very specific issue. It, I'm concerned about discrimination being operationalized automatically. Um, and that's, that's hard. Uh, it's hard to, or I think it's, I think it's very unnatural and very unintuitive to, you know, see have this technology that's kind of in itself neutral and then communicating that into a policy regime that actually attacks that. You know, he, he talked about the New York bill and that bill essentially um, required companies using AI and hiring to give notice to consumers or potential uh, hirees, whatever. What does that actually do, though? What What is this? He, you know, he expresses frustration with it. What does this notice actually do? Uh, to some extent, of course, it makes things less efficient. There's more bureaucracy. But does that actually? What is the issue with using AI and hiring? You know, it it sounds like a lot of people who love the technology argue that it can decrease discrimination. It can, it can illuminate the actual qualifications that don't even need, um, you know, who is it? Billy Bob from the yeah. <laughs> HR to look through, but at the same time, uh, you know, it, it can, it can bake in all these historic inequities and that's, that's the issue. So how do you actually address that historic inequity and what, where's the actual fix? Is it a technological fix? Is it a data intake fix? Is it a sociological fix that that then becomes technological? Well, and that to me even feels like just like hedging for liability, like the just let them know feature. Like to your point, it doesn't it doesn't make you feel better about the fact that it happened. It's yeah, just like, exactly. well, we told them so they yeah. knew. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, I they mean, can complain about it now, <laughs> you know. The way the way that he framed it was he said or like three things that we should be thinking about yeah. in regulating. AI. The low-hanging fruit would be expressed in, 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 in these, these, these three ways. You know, first of all, I, I think that this automation deserves to be explicit about what it does and have circuit breakers. 
So the, the 18 million programmers, absent a conversation, absent feedback, will just do what their product managers tell them to do. And they'll be, if they can link automations, they'll link automations. They have their own set of incentives. What we may want to do as a society is break up those uh, automation sequences. So as the car comes upon the, the crosswalk and, and sees an anomaly, the, it's right to have a, a human intervention to determine then what they think it is, if, if, if no uh, less of a reason to just assign liability. But, but that's, that's a, an example of just having a circuit breaker. The, that could be written in regs. The second is having a sort of audit. You know, did the algorithm do what I said it would do? You know, we get this enormous productivity benefit from many of these algorithms. We can take a little bit out of the way and just determine what was the intent of the algorithm and is it doing what it intended? You know, separate the data from the data model and then have the data model be declared as what was the intention? What was, what was to be the input? What was to be the output? Just audit that darn thing. Right? And you can use zero knowledge proofs or whatever mechanism you want to use if you don't want to actually expose the data model. But then the third is uh, require a lineage or a data provenance. You know, this is in the books in many cases, but that is a part of, of the linking of these automations that I think could easily be uh, uh, written in and later enforced, which is where did this auto automation decision come from? Where did the data come from? I want that to be infinitely linked. You don't need a blockchain to be able to do that. You know, you may need that solution at a different level of math, but you need that lineage or provable data provenance. We, we sometimes require that of banks. We can require that in a lot of other domains. So those are three areas for regs, uh, the, the circuit breakers, the audit, and, and lineage that I think are easy, low-hanging fruit to uh, to implement for uh, AI policy globally. One, breaking up automation sequences so that there can be a human decision that intervenes. I think he brought up the example of the autonomous vehicle. Um, of course, there's a problem because some decisions, especially in, with autonomous vehicles, are so quick and in the moment that it would be hard for me to see how a human could intervene. When you have this moment where there's about to be an accident and it's literally a split second decision. Isn't that the very reason we want autonomous vehicles because they can react more quickly? So as I think it's a useful way to think about it. I don't know if it can always be reconciled with what we're actually looking for in that technology. Another thing, and this I guess is more of a retrospective one is auditing. So looking at how was the decision made? Um, what are the factors that went into the decision? And what also goes into this more retrospective analysis is having being able to trace the lineage of the data that is being fed into the algorithm. Now, I don't know exactly how realistic that is for all algorithms. And, and that's, again, I guess, where the technical understanding comes in. But <clears throat> maybe a, a broader question I've been thinking about is I also think we should be careful in when we, when we describe this technology as somehow uniquely complicated and 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 inscrutable um, for any normal person to understand, I think we're elevating it too much. We have plenty of other industries that are extremely complicated in their own right: um, nuclear technology, the defense industry, even pharma and the medical industry. So, what is it about artificial intelligence? 
that makes it or why are we talking about it as somehow uniquely complicated? Well, I think there's a clear answer there. You know, I think what makes AI uniquely difficult is the fact that it's not clear what we're actually referring to. That's one part of it. But the other part is it is very difficult to map on our conventional understanding of rules to this automatic process that's becoming more and more integral to decision-making. So I think the complexity is finding new ways to articulate what does accountability look like in an AI system. If something, if I'm applying for a home loan and I get a ridiculous rate um, and the bank is like, this is your rate and I feel like it's incorrect and I can, you know, how do I, how do I go about showing... getting accountability when I can show that it's incorrect. Do I go to the person who decided which data to use? Is that where the like fault lines work? Do I go to the person who decided that this output was sufficiently um, robust? Do I turn to, you know, where does the chain of responsibility lie? Because fundamentally, we're kind of taking out, you know, humans from a lot of this decision-making that we historically have been a part of. And I think, you know, you're looking at, and I think there's like a I think we're getting closer to understanding how we actually do that. You know, the complexity is as you were saying, you know, you get you get very uh you get, we're getting more granular. You're looking at AI policies that are being passed all the time now and there's some provisions that I think are pretty insightful like accountability. You can't always explain like you're saying with automatic cars. You can't always explain why a car did a decision or you, or you can't to a very clear sense. You can't, you, sometimes you can't, but you can articulate, you know, maybe accountability or transparency in, in this era means, you know, this is what we're trying to do. This is what the outcome did. And <laughs> based on that, you know, that's the complexity. The technology yeah. to me is yeah. like quite simple, honestly. I think, yeah. As someone who doesn't I think that it. one thing, <laughs> I, I do agree with you that like holding it on this pedestal of like something we'll never understand isn't really helpful from a pol- policy perspective. I do think there's an aspect to it that is intuitively about fear because I think when you're talking about other, like, let's talk about pharma. When you're talking about pharma, like we, we were talking about dope sick, the show dope sick on HBO. Um, but like the idea in dope sick is like Purdue pharma did a bad thing and it like hurt society in these huge ways, but there's like someone to punish for it. Right. But when an algorithm does something bad, like when AI does something bad and it's just based on these algorithms, it's like, who do you blame? Because it's just learning from this data. And like you sort of blame, I guess, the data set at large or maybe like retrospectively, we should have been training it differently. But like, for example, like the phenomenon that self-driving vehicles, like for some reason, have instructions and we're behaving in such a way that they drive faster through low-income neighborhoods than they do through high-income neighborhoods. Like what? Like who are we going to blame? Like who did a bad yeah, thing there? I mean... Of course, but we do also in other contexts, even with pharmaceutical products. Yes, sometimes there are situations where the manufacturers knew that they had these side effects and simply did not tell the public. But often we have situations where there might be side effects that no one really knows about in that, you know, initially at least. And then it turns out because we don't always know all the effects that any yeah. product is going to have sure, on the body. But, sure, but even or, then you so, st- there's a or, there's a negligence theory there where it's like still someone will have to like you can always risk something and you risk succeeding or you risk causing a problem, but there's really no we're not holding these like we're not holding AI to any sort of standards we're sort of just like we you can do so much 
that we are going to accept the fact that you also might do so much bad because like we can't not accept we've seen what what it can do now that we almost just have to embrace it for the risk that it's going to bring. Right, but then can't the negligence standard just be applied to the people who made the AI? You know, I, is it though? I, no, that's, it, I guess I don't know. I feel like that's the question we have to like that we are just now having to answer. That's like that's where the complexity is because, to you know, you were saying, Jess, we have these theories and standards and like you know, with a corporation without AI when they made all these decisions, but even that's not straightforward. Corporations are huge, and while they they're not straightforward, and yeah. decisions get operationalized, but that someone makes at the top by up to thousands of people below yeah. them. Right. You know, I'm thinking about Wells Fargo and the times that they were, you know, I think they're still kind of getting held accountable for the shady stuff that they were doing at the yeah. time with accounts. And, you know, the CEO was like, we have the best accounts. But then on the, like, you look into, like, the actual specifics, there are employees who are breaking the law, clearly. And do they have to do that to keep their job? Like, where does that come from? Where does that fall? And it's like a chain of decisions that, in my mind, mirrors a lot of uh, the implementation of artificial intelligence where it's not clear where that chain falls. We just have to make a choice about which makes most sense. Right. Here, I, I think there's a whole you know discipline about complexity theory, which is basically studying the, the fact that you know in the social world and the universe in general, oftentimes we can observe very basic principles leading to very complex situations where the behavior of the whole system, even though the principles don't change, um, is incredibly unpredictable and nonlinear. And this kind of uh, you know, system-wide behavior describes all of reality because we have some very basic laws of the universe and they've created such complex phenomena. But uh, so in many ways, I think, you know, off of your point about corporations, is like we've been dealing with autonomous decision-making yeah. to, vary, to varying degrees for a long time. Society and our various institutions make uh, quote-unquote decisions that were never like consciously um, you know, set out or made as a goal. But those behaviors emerge either way. Uh, so I think that there's two ways to look at AI. One is um, a very, very complicated product. It's a software product. You know, it can do great things, but ultimately, you know, it doesn't fundamentally change the paradigm of who we are as people because it's just very effective. Uh, but at the same time, we should look at not only just AI individually as an individual system, but a society that's AI enabled. Uh, and, you know, how, the, how, how that will lead to complicated effects. Or even if we can predict how a business will use AI, it's very hard to predict how an economy will. And, uh, and so I think that that in itself, plus the fa fact that, you know, using uh, statistics, we can outsource, you know, our own like thinking in mathematical form. Like I disagree with Daimler when he said that statistics is not a useful way to describe AI. I, you know, I, I think of, of, of AI as what's a useful definition rather than maybe what's the technically precise one. You've had some attempts at this with people writing books saying it's just augmentation or it's just automation or the worst one I don't like is it's just statistics. I don't find that to be terribly helpful. <laughs> um, because it's actually a very, very powerful technique um, that once we start automating more and more decisions together, I think the fear from a complexity theory or sociology perspective is that we have no idea how society will begin to behave and that you know we will see particular trends or disjunctive behaviors that are collective that no one's picking um, that are just like completely different, hard to predict or very damaging. Yeah. I mean, this is a fear with lethal autonomous weapons, for example. I think we, we never, I mean, I, it, it could very well be that the uncertainty is amplified once we introduce artificial intelligence on a society-wide basis. But I do feel that we often just don't know 
like we already just can't predict what's going to happen and to maybe go on an, uh, on a more individualized level i mean there's a, there are a lot of theories out there just purely psychological theories that we as human beings don't even know why we make decisions and then afterwards we tell ourselves a story to justify that decision and so would we be would we be satisfied if although we might not ever actually know why the ai made the decision in that very moment they just like human beings just tell a story about how they made that decision and like would we be satisfied with that you know are our standards that we're introducing for artificial intelligence for it to be completely transparent like is that just inconsistent with how human intelligence works and human decision making works i've actually started developing i think an entirely different kind of like starting point for what these standards are actually doing you know a 2018 report from pwc showed how ai has will likely or could be up to it could increase global gdp by up to 14 percent which is like at the time it was bigger than china and india's gdp combined um that's how much it can add so i think what ai really represents is not so much new problems it more so represents an opportunity to create new solutions because we're going to have this technology proliferate into all of these areas of decision making where if we can, you know, in some way pretend that we're regulating this technology, we can usher in a new paradigm for society. And I think that's like, that's how I've been envisioning it now. We're not really trying to you know, what we're trying to do here is seize this opportunity where there's this thing that doesn't necessarily comport with our conventional understandings. And there are ways in which it can make conventional histories or inequities worse or better. And we can introduce mechanisms that give us to maybe a more just and more society, democratic society, or we can do things that get us farther away from that and whatever that looks like. So it's not so much about what we're trying to do with the technology, but what we want society looks like, as August was saying, enabled by this technology that will be everywhere. You know, it will be everywhere. And that's awesome. That's like a cool thing where because it will be so everywhere, we can kind of nudge society in a way that augments us. The part that gets me excited about computers is what always got me excited about computers, which is that it can liberate people to express themselves away from dull, monotonous, boring, and in the case of some robots, you know, dangerous work. That's what's available uh, with computing power and what's available with what I will then call, you know, an augmentation tool, augmenting uh, what, what we uh, don't want to do. Yeah, fourteen percent of global GDP. That's that's a lot of wealth that's going to be <laughs> created. And and the que- and then the question is just yeah, how much of that wealth is going to go to the haves, and how much of the wealth is going to go to those who 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 need it? And like that's the sense in which AI is not new, right? It's, just, yeah. it's just, this is a tool that people want, and but it's like that it's it's of someone's product, and so like people are very good at developing this technology, and they have they've cornered this market. Mm-hmm. So like in terms of AI coming in and like 
automating away dangerous jobs, boring jobs. Like there's this book in 19, 1951, Friedrich Pollock, who was part of the Frankfurt School, like wrote this book on automation. And he talked about the future of the workforce and how it would free people up from the factory floor and like really elevate people's sense of self and people's sense of participation in the economy because they could do more meaningful work. Like we're not seeing that. We're not seeing that happen. Like, I do think they've probably automated away some dangerous jobs, but think about the huge hit that's going to be taken, like, in the retail industry. Like, a huge percentage of Americans work in the retail industry, and they're automating that right now. The trucking industry, and, like, there's no... The discussions that are sort of, like, superficial about retraining these individuals, like, retraining them for what? Like, with what? Like, how? Mm -hmm. We are literally, like, trying very hard to find good jobs in this economy. And so imagine having worked in a trucking in, in the trucking industry for 20 years and all of a sudden they're going to retrain you for some other job mm-hmm. that can't be automated away. I just find that like, that's not a, that's, I don't, that's not like a believable story of yeah. AI freeing up society. Mm-hmm. But that's also just the story of industrialization. Yeah. That's, well, that, uh, it's a cycle we go through. Well, that's kind of why I felt I, like, you know, he talks about inevitability you know, the first time I dropped out of my PhD program, I, I, I like to say, you know, before it was fashionable, <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, it was working at a bank in New York uh, when the Mosaic browser came out. And that that was the weirdest feeling I had in my body uh, where, you know, the other people were looking at this as some sort of curiosity. And and I I just thought it was like a, a, a feeling in my, my body from having a bad lunch. Uh, I thought I got to get out of here. You know, this is this is a world changer. So I that I can't say I knew in advance, but I knew immediately, immediately when I saw it. Uh, and you know, within a week, I think I left that job, uh, and I I had job offers you know, shortly after from a firm in California, and then another startup in Seattle. Um, so that I just knew that. Uh, I I think what's changed is it it. The, People are t- have a hard time conceptualizing uh, uh, big, big changes, exponential changes, quadratic, quadratic changes. So some of this is inevitable. Some of this is, we we can just have seen if we had projected the increase in computing resources uh, and the implications. I think I've just been fortunate enough to see from different perspectives. You know, there there was in 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 Obama's uh, office. There's a of course an oval shaped rug, and on the outside of that rug there was an inscription, and it said uh, uh, it was a as a quote credited credited to Martin Luther King. I don't know whether he actually said it or not. Uh, you know, the long arc of history bends towards justice, and 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 the president uh, would remind us, uh, and I will not try his accent, but you know, he remind us. He'll say, you know, not without our involvement. Right? That was the important part. Not without involvement. So, you know, the long arc of history bends towards justice, but not without involvement, our involvement. But, like, I was thinking about, you know, August and I, we, we have worked at the Center for AI and Digital Policy, uh, where we're, you know, we've done a deep dive. We, we kind of know what's happening in the regulatory, like, uh, landscape right now. And it's not an inevitable proliferation. A lot of this technology has been around for decades. It's an inevitable adoption, or it's it's a, it's a unique adoption. It's an, it's a proliferation that's happening. But there is a concerted effort amongst businesses, amongst policymakers, amongst a ton of people to make society air enabled. That I I don't see it as this inevitability, mm-hmm. uh, in the in the sense that it was going to happen because it's just so useful that it must happen. Right. It's going to happen because a lot of people see a lot of applications for it that seem worth the risk of maybe leaving behind swaths like whole portion of society that can't even 
handle Facebook or get or really grasp how to use technology. Just increased product. It's just the goal of increased productivity. But like at the stake <laughs> yeah. of what? Because because our work weeks are getting longer. Like these are the disconnects that the, like AI was originally conceived of as freeing up our time, freeing up individuals, letting us be more creative. And yet like we don't implement it in a way that helps people do that. We just are increasing profit margins. Yeah, We're not there. Then again, I think also it's always important to look at this from somewhat of a distance. Like just because we're not there yet doesn't mean we're not going to arrive there. You know, so and sometimes sometimes these things can happen very. What is it? I think wasn't it like Lenin who said there are decades when I knew a Lenin quote was coming eventually in this podcast. What did he say again? He said um, there are there are decades when like nothing happens and then there are weeks when decades happen. So. I mean, again, this goes to the point of just it being hard to predict. Um, and I do think, yeah, when when that moment happens or if it ever happens, we will have to decide how are we going to redistrib- redistribute all that wealth that is going to be created and also think more broadly about like work and whether work is something that human being, like whether it's inherent in some way or whether we can also just have a system where we distribute that wealth and uh, people, you know, don't necessarily have to work to secure their existence. We might arrive at that point at some point, but we are still far away from that. And but it, and it kind of makes sense, like, that we could get there. Like, you know, if, if, yeah. if, if all these tasks that required a human no longer need to be there, then maybe we should be asking even more ambitious questions about what society can actually look like. Can a society actually exist where people are not defined by their work, but by their creativity or by by, by their willing ability to just exist. Uh, can that actually function? Can AI get us there? And if so, should, is that... Is that something that we want? <laughs> yeah, like, uh, or, or, you know, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do think that there is a sense of, um, like, fulfillment in work. I do think contributing to society, like, and not everyone just being, like, vagabond, like, artists right. is useful for certain individuals and certain personalities yeah but here i would bring up another frankfurt school person uh which was uh, herbert marcuse who talked about the influence of capitalism on culture and how that culture was essentially a department of capitalism and that um uh you know it's hard to imagine a world in which creativity has more cachet than productivity that um when we're also just kind of resting on the material wealth of like an AI powered super capitalism that's just incredibly profitable. And then we redistribute that to everyone else. Uh, it's, it, I, I guess I struggle to think about how we would change like the cultural norms that capitalism still produces when, you know, we are very aware that any kind of leisure time we have is off the basis of hyperproductive businesses that are in algorithmic competition with each other. Uh, and I have a whole idea about how that wouldn't really be competition. It would be a cartel, but, uh, <laughs> but, but that's, that's a different episode. And, um, but you know, I, I, I just, I, it's hard for me to think about a different way of us conceiving work and identity when that system still continues to exist. You know, it may be, maybe harder to see, but it would still exist. I mean, a future in which people don't like have to work. Like yeah. When, 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 you know, ultimately the economy is still uh, about capital. That'd be so awesome. Wally. Well, it's just like not having to work. 
Yeah. <laughs> I never understood in Wally like but how I think can we'll they always, afford yeah, we'll what like they are over consuming right. everything they're over consuming everything it's sort yeah. of this glut where do they like get their resources dis- but like how are they paying for like their food right I assume that in the spaceship it's like a socialist utopia well, right. the right. over labor of like food cultivation but it's sort of it's sort of a depressing view of humanity, which is that if you do like literally have free time and not have to work, are you going to be prone to be creative, or are you just going to be consuming? Right, right, yeah, that's the or question. Like some sloth state. Yeah. yeah, you know, like is there is our natural inclination to be active, or is it just to sit down, you know, and have a rest? Is that is that Pixar? It depends on the day. It's Pixar, yeah. It depends on the day, but which which ones which ones more common? Yeah. But also. Again, I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon because also if you just think well, about most, most if you, if you just think about how much we need to transform our economy to deal with climate change, you know, that's an entirely different area where artificial intelligence it'll help, but it we're still going to have to you know, make advances in solar technology and install or make all some these alternative pivotal societal choices that we're not willing to seem, seemingly willing right. to make. Well, we would we would just need a we need a new energy source. Yeah, but you know, and like but AI, we're still so far away from that. And also, AI consumes fossil fuels, you know, to compute. Yeah, so it does make the problem worse. And also, we still have a lot of space exploration to do. We you do. Know? So we do. Um, but there could be new energy resources on space. Well, need. <laughs> Did I say need? <laughs> I I agree with the need. I endorse the. Word. Or I think we will inevitably do it. I we need to do an I, episode on space. I still think this. I'll do it myself. This society where where we've somehow reached every frontier and where there is no longer um, any work to be done, I I just think that's still quite far away. And and also I think we might not even. The, the the artificial intelligence that we have right now, just purely from a theoretical standpoint, is I think just not sufficiently advanced. I mean, however, when the Volvo, great driver, that Volvo can drive pretty well. Mm. It can drive, so. Mm. I, I think <laughs> but not in every situation. I think we do see some like profound aspects. Well, actually, first I'll say you know when it comes to AI being applied to work, uh, there will be like efficiency motives. It'll also be a political decision. You know, that's something that, I mean, we were just, I assume we were talking about the New York regulation about hiring uh, and and notice about AI hire, about AI assessments. Um, but there will always be these kinds of political calculations about how and where to develop AI, because that's all of science, that all scientific development has largely been a political project. Mm-hmm. Most of the technologies that we use in daily life that we consider advanced uh, were largely motivated by certain political exigencies. Um, this goes back to, I'm kind of rambling here, but this it's is okay. Oh, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're big ramblers, you know? but this goes back to like earlier about, you know, um, uh, uh, in, um, there's, you know, our, our technological developments are scientifically true. They're, they're based on fact, you know, facts about reality. Uh, but why did we, we should always ask like, why are we choosing to develop this specifically? There are many different paths. I mean, for example, in the, during the rise of the autom- automobile over 100 years ago, uh, the, the, those are electric cars. Mm-hmm. You know, they use electric engines. They're batteries. But we, we, it's not that th- this proved impossible, although it was sluggish and there were drawbacks. We could have improved that technology. We might have had electric cars 50 years earlier than we do. But uh, no, instead, there was a conscious choice to rely on fuel, uh, or to re- rely on oil. I think it was because it was cheaper. But uh, there was also 
uh, you know, there, there are all these kind of social exigencies that shift the direction of science. Which is why, like, which is why I struggle with the inevitability of it all. Like, it, yeah. It yeah. seems like that, sure. But as of now, there seems to be a tide growing against its application in a lot of different sectors of life. Right, yeah. And it, you can even think about the technologies that we abandoned. The the super blimp, what was the thing called? Those oh, like, the the Hindenburg, <laughs> the, yeah. the Zeppelin. I think about yeah. all the time. Like there yeah. was, there was. Those tons, are some trippy things. There were ton, there was tons of money, yeah. tons put into that research and development, and like there's being a new wave of bringing some of that research and development back with flying cars and trying to, you know, are we talking get, about flying like our cars? Wait, who's developing flying cars? Nikita. <laughs> really? Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yes. Yes. No. There are a ton of companies with billion-dollar valuations uh, that are endeavoring and creating flying cars. And the, the the challenge is political. People don't trust things that fly that are not standardized. They do not trust. We see a plane, even though there's a history of things that weren't planes flying. There's clear technological ability to fly things like cars. The only thing stopping them is trust, comfort, and politics, effectively. Right. Uh, so much so that you have billion-dollar companies that can't necessarily legally do what they want to do, mm-hmm. but they are hoping that they can build the messaging to push the technology into the main. Right. But is it just trust, or is the technology just not quite there yet? You have, you know, Nick, but we're, we're, ever gonna, we're only ever going to invest to get the technology there when there's that when we've made the decision. I mean, I mean, I mean think about it. We can fly things like like that's a very simple thing to do. Generally, I don't know how flying cars would work. You have to Nikita, our PhD, our resident PhD uh, friend, he's the one. He, he that's a lot of what his research is aimed towards. But what would be what's the difference between like? Can we just put wheels on a helicopter and then you have a flying car? Well, that's the whole like, point. Like, well, what his, the, the whole point is that we have, hel- like, we have all these different Wait, ways you can fly. Like, like planes. Like, no, helicopters don't have wheels, I think, I know, because I they just take engineer. off vertically. I'm no engineer, but engine, like helicopters, planes, there's all these different ways, but they're pretty oh, yeah, standardized. Okay. We only have allowed society to fly in like a handful of ways. If, if you look at like armed forces, they do way more different. They have way more different mechanisms of flying. Oh yeah, I mean they do so much stuff we don't even know about. Exactly, and and, and that's and that's the whole point of like the politics of it all. I mean, we can even take a step back. The car itself, you know, we live car dependent lives. It's a country can, that is built on, this on the car, the infrastructure, the freeway that had multiple purposes. You know, one was getting away from nuclear bombs. The other was segregating. The other was um, individual individualism. Right. right. And the other was, of course, like jobs from car factories because we we're the only ones making cars in the beginning. And, um, you know, so uh, all, all of that has resulted in a society that is completely transformed, both physically uh, and I think in the way that we think about space. I mean, L.A. versus or San Francisco versus L.A. San Francisco yeah. develops pre-car. And it shows. Right. LA developed with the car central in mind. There was a time LA in LA actually that it was all trolleys, and it was this whole entire system. They put billions of dollars towards having these tracks. That was super productive. Car came. They were like, "We're making a new city." Right. <laughs> right. But when when Eisenhower decided to build the federal highway system, he was deciding not to build public transport, mm-hmm. uh, or and not certainly develop research in better public transport. And the difference is clear when you compare us to, for example, Tokyo or something. No, oh my yeah. God, no. me taking the bus to City Hall in San Diego, mm-hmm. and I worked there. Ugh. Anyway, more funding for public transit. <laughs> <laughs> one other thing, one other reason why I think we're not going to get into the state of inertia anytime soon is because we're competing with countries all around the world 
And this has national security implications. Like we have to keep improving the technology purely out of national security reasons. So I think where this kind of static, like this state where we've just kind of achieved everything we want and where the technology has somehow matured, I I think it's still far away, mm-hmm. if even ever. I, I also just think it might just be incompatible with just how how we as humans operate. I think it's I think it's far away too. And I think um like we talked about Wait, what is this point we're talking about? This far away point? I think we're just like a like AI being, I guess, like seamlessly implemented in most of our day to day activities, which are, I mean, we're already part way there. But I think like even even the arrival of maybe like something close to general AI, you know, like something where it's not looked at as like a boogeyman in society, but just like like the electric vehicle, you know, right. Right. I, I feel like we talked about Nick Bostrom's book with um, Eric and he said, you know, really that that book is about an existential threat and that there is a kind of a question mark as to, you know, maybe we might arrive there, but um, maybe it's more useful. It's like a better use of time to be working on other aspects. So if people read Nick Buster, and I know Nick, if if but I, I like him, he's a smart guy. Uh, if people read that book carefully, they'll they'll find that he's not making any predictions on the timing. Do you remember when we got back to clear vision, short time horizon, that's a vision. So who knows when that actually happens, really, if it ever will, the, the idea that AI becomes conscious. The point he's raising is that it's an existential threat if it ever does happen and that we, it's really difficult to predict. So then what he suggests is that we spend some part of our time thinking about uh, how to counteract that threat. My regulation recommendations actually go some way towards that. You know, if we are implementing circuit breakers, if we are auditing, if we are demanding lineage, that gives us the visibility and the power to to break up the automation that will be of value as we think about how to counteract a a possible future threat about artificial general intelligence, you know, the nomenclature for uh, for conscious AI. But if if I look at, to to, to Jerry Kaplan's point, who I also know, that if if I think about uh, the probability of that happening, I'd say mostly the the people that I interact with think it's unlikely to happen uh, in the next 20 to 30 years or even any, any of our lifetimes. Uh, it's just really hard because, and, and I'll tell you why, it's a little bit like why I'm skeptical on the metaverse right now. It's because we have a backward sense of what proprioception is. Are we in the, are we in the space or is the space just being acclimated to us? The, the idea of intelligence as a consciousness, I think we just do not know enough about. You know, the voices in our head, uh, you know, who's that talking? We don't have a concept of what that is. So we just don't understand intelligence enough. I think to be able to automate it. Now, with all that, right? Let's get really clear. I actually don't think any of that matters. So you asked me to find what the middle ground is. I'm going to say neither, because the the real the point is besides all that, we have actually a lot of work to do. Because even if Nick Bostrom is wrong, even if he's wrong forever, the computing power will get to be so substantial that it will simulate. A conscious being, you know, it will have a sort of manipulative effect on us 
that can be taken advantage of by bad actors. You know, we, we see it right now by food companies. Do they know more about my physiology than I do? You know, you ever have try having one potato chip? You know, they know how I like sugar and fat, right? So, so you know, they, they'll just get me uh, over and over. That's how the computers will react to my own mind uh, before, before too long. So the point is, it doesn't matter uh, whether these become conscious or not, we have a lot of work to do. And the, the recommendations I outlined for, uh, for regulation of these automation machines, uh, I think can go a long way towards mitigating uh, some of those risks. And that last thing, we, do, we can all get involved in that conversation and get us more comfortable with that, how we can have control over it. And don't leave it up to just people like me. I, I want to push back on that in the, like, Nick Bostrom's point in talking about the existential threat is illustrated in like this sort of like allegory that he has at the very beginning of the book, which is, it's called like, um, the unfinished fable of the sparrows. Oh, right. I remember uh, It's this. very, it's like quite compelling, I thought. Yeah, but, yeah. but the idea basically being like, okay, there are these sparrows that live in this sparrow society. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Oh, right. And yeah. they're very tired of like making their nests. Yeah. Like they just find this work very draining. And one of them thinks one day, like, Imagine if we could like train an owl to build our nest for us. Like they're so powerful, like they're bigger than us, blah, blah, blah. So like we should go find an owl egg. And then there are a couple kind of like nervous sparrows that are like, yeah, but think about like the risks of this. Like what if the owl like decides to like take over? Like what if they like start preying on us? Like how will we train it? It's like this powerful creature. And the like majority of the sparrows are like, well, like that's a big problem, but like it's hard enough to like just even like find an owl. So like we'll just do that, mm-hmm. and so it's like this unfinished fable because that's the point where we are, where it's like, yeah. yeah, we can't we can't like preemptively anticipate like it's gonna be. We don't even know if we'll ever achieve general intelligence. So why would we try before we can even know if we're gonna do it? To like yeah, like di- why would we divert resources from like this goal of achieving something powerful by like trying to figure out how we're gonna handle. The periphery has not yet reached the state of general artificial intelligence. <laughs> We're having some technical difficulties, um, but we are also wrapping up. Um, like all of our conversations, this one left us with more questions than we had initially. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's uh, that's also our bread and butter. That's why that's why you need to keep coming back to the periphery with these questions. Email us. Reach out to us on social media. On our YouTube channel. (laughs) See you. See you there. Forthcoming. Forthcoming 2022.